Welcome to the Growth Hacking Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Ivan Palomino. This podcast is about thought-provoking ideas to scale up and growth hack performing and human-centric work cultures. My guests are experts on mindsets, skills, and science behind work cultures. I hope you enjoy this episode. Today, I want to discuss a very sensitive topic, which is about the fact that why the hell there is so many companies in starting a transformation and not succeeding. So according to the 2021 study by McKinsey, 70% of corporate culture transformation initiatives fail. And there are many reasons for that. So we can say that there is the lack of alignment with business strategy. We can say that there is the fault of leadership because there is lack of commitment, employee engagement, lack of communication, measurement. Well, the truth, is that it's unclear to for any corporations to know how to start and do it right. And there is no like secret recipe to a start, but it's something that is quite adaptive to the situation of the co corporation. And today I wanted to, to have a guest who has really in-depth knowledge and has done some research about what companies are doing. And by the way, he's and the author of the book, Jumpstart Your Workplace Culture, a roadmap for igniting high performance. Um, on top of that, so Eric Stone, my guest today, he is the founder of Clear Path Venture. Uh, he specializes on guiding leaders and businesses to navigate into their path to success, specifically about the transformation. He brings with him more than 26 years of experience working for a well-known company that has approximately, if I remember correctly, 60,000 employees, uh, where he was leading as even more, right? <laughs> where he was leading as a regional vice president. Eric Stone, I'm so happy to have you with me. Uh, and I remember that in the initial interaction that we had, prior to this recording, it was already quite fitting and, and I was quite impressed about your wealth of knowledge on the topic. Uh, Eric, so I wanted to kickstart by asking you a couple of things that, if, that leaders might not know and they either believe like the usual blah, blah, that there is the, the usual fluff that there is around how to build a workplace culture, how to start. And to, I want to understand what is true or what is a myth, or if there is something that it is in the middle, neither one or the other. And I have a couple of questions to kickstart the, the topic. Is that right for you? Yeah, Ivan, I'm ready to go. Thanks for, thanks for having me. <laughs> Eric, it's a pleasure, really. So the, the first topic is about the fact that there are is it true, in fact, that we the impact of work culture on the business, on the outcomes of the business, uh, has never been measured? That we don't know that there is a correlation between business impact and having a great culture, and that is only the good beliefs of people who have been fighting during the hippie times, and they believe that in a better world, but there is no real business outcome. What is your take on that? So I would say it's, it's I guess, partly true. So I think organizations measure pieces of workplace culture. For example, everyone has heard of engagement surveys and things like that. And engagement, high engagement, 
uh, the key is it does lead to strong business outcomes. So if you do any of the companies like a Gallup and you use them for engagement, you will see those top tier corporations who have great engagement do lead to strong business outcomes. Increase, I think it's up to 10% in customer loyalty and engagement and 18% in productivity with sales and it reduces absenteeism. And there's a whole a profitability up 23%. And so that is a component and that's why it's partly true, but there are other things you should always consider. I guess it would be like if you ask, do you love your partner? And how do you measure it? And it's just become so choppy and tricky. Uh, the one thing I talk about in the book are these six points of inspection. Engagement is kind of a double-weighted category of my six. But so it's a partly true. Uh, there are just many components that create a very high-performing organizational culture. Okay, that is uh, that is super interesting. I I hope that we have we will have the time to dig a little bit on this component. Let me tell you a little bit another question. So, people, the employees need to be told about the new culture through regular in-class trainings and manuals. So, telling them what to do is the solution to do this transformation. Is that true or a myth? So, so again, I'm going to go right down the middle and say, I mean, it's. Partly true. So, so when you think of training and the importance of these check-ins, that is unbelievably critical in a law start. When you think about what culture is about, it's about behaviors. And you can actually train, coach, and develop strong behaviors. And so there has to be settings along the employee journey where there are touch points that you're talking about these behaviors. It's kind of that lather, rinse, repeat approach. And check-ins are critical to follow up on your training, kind of like a reflection log, a learning log, something that makes me not only get trained on it, but apply the training. But you have to go back a little bit, of course, for the hiring process, which is a critical, critical component. And what are organizations doing to truly what I talk about is hire for match of their organizational culture. When you hire great people, it is amazing what can happen. Matter of fact, some of those great employees might get away with less training, not that that's what you'd want to do. But it starts really on the hiring for match. Training and check-ins are a critical component. And then it really goes into how do you, are there quarterly reviews, a yearly review that reiterate the initiatives that you're trying to push through your organization and drive the same behaviors throughout? And so once you make an organizational change on a behavior, you have to insert it into your training, your reviews, your check-ins. So it's partly true. I, I love what you say because I truly believe that this part is essential. So Training, so if we look at it from the traditional point of view, uh, it has been a person of knowledge where you don't have the time to practice behaviors. And as you said, we you cannot change culture if the behaviors are not practiced and maybe the, where there is uh, there needs to be a little bit of feedback for people to know if they are going to the right track of, of their practicing the right behavior. And sometimes it has to be situational that it, in the sense that it needs to be personalized to the to the um, to the place where you are, so in order to reflect on how are you going to express these behaviors, like if you are an accountant versus a sales uh, person, how are you going to express, for instance, I don't know, collaboration? So it's not the same uh, type of behaviors, and people need a little bit of hints, triggers, also in order to start doing this behavior. It's, it's super essential. And the other point that is I really loved is the 
that if you are hiring the right people, the right match of, uh, of people aligned with your the culture that you have or you want, then it's going to be less of a hassle, less of a, an effort to convert or to modify that slightly the, uh, the behaviors. Now, Eric, this story about hiring because there is a match, it looks awesome, but in reality, some people may say, huh, but we don't have the right assessments to, to do that. Uh, because sometimes in an interview, so we, we either know how to mime certain behaviors or to demonstrate, or we know how to answer uh, in order to demonstrate that we, are, we, are have, we have certain values or that are aligned with the culture. Sometimes it is easy to fake, and then the more you become senior, the easier it is to fake, by the way, because we already know what is expected from, uh, from us. How do we really spot that you and me are aligned, the same, we are in the same wavelength? So, yeah, such a great question. And so I think a few things have to happen. I think number one is uh, there has to be, to your point, what are the questions that are asked that are going to truly get the typical versus optimal response? The art of an interview, because most people go in, Ivan, as you know, and they're at their best. They're not trying to be at their worst. So they're going to be potentially the best that they're capable of being. And so you have to figure out in your organization, what are those character questions? What are those things that are going to allow the employee to be put at ease and to deliver truly who they are? I like simple questions. One of my favorite questions to truly understand who people are after I put them at ease in the interview of kind of explaining the process is tell me your story, Ivan. And I leave it completely blank and I allow you to tell me and go wherever you want to go. And wherever you go is usually what's important to you. So if you start talking about your passion for business and your love of training, whatever it is, I'm going to kind of get a little bit of an insight of, of who you are. So that was one simple thing. I used to have a character test. I would have my HR manager or my executive assistant would introduce themselves without their position to the applicant. And based on their experience and how they were treated, believe it or not, what time they showed up, how they treated this unknown person would mean a, a lot to the process. And so from before the interview, during the interview, um, you have to have some of those questions. Another question I really enjoyed was, tell me about something that happened in your life that truly changed who you are today. And it allows me again to see a little bit about how they've overcome potential challenges throughout. The last little thing I love to do is, and this is why it's so important that everyone understands the right questions for your organization, is I would always do a little bit of a, I called it the pushback. And it didn't mean you were wrong. I just took the opposite side. So if I asked, you know, does, is customer service truly the most important thing? And is the customer ever wrong? And the, you know, what do they say? Are they, are they okay to say, you know, the customer's not always right. They just have to feel that they're always right. And so I might take an op opposing stance because I want to see their character again. Do they stand up to what they believe in? And then, of course, your typical behavioral questions. But that's why it's so important that you have these things set aside to allow yourself to make a good decision. And it's really hard. I mean, how do you get the typical versus optimal is absolutely practice. The second part of that is what sort of training do you give your hiring team? 
And so you might have a talent acquisition that is really good for the screening process, but you might have district managers, managers who might not be as fluid in the process. And I always recommend having some sort of interview training and prep to make sure that there are no biases that can happen. And there's another common trap that certainly happens or pitfalls or uh, tells I used to call them. So a whole bunch has to go behind that. I love that the fact that you give enough room for yeah. making that the answer to these questions could be personal or work related. And when it, when you, because it's the same person who goes to work, the person who is at home or the person who goes to the, to the office. So giving them the opportunity to reflect on something that they have done in, in any of these situations gives you a little bit more of feeling in order to uh, to judge if if it is there is a good match because the values and the fact the the values count and, and the fact that you challenge a little bit the slide that will uh, test if you uh, if you want the elasticity of people towards uh, the the real situation could they, are they going to bend over because eric is pushing into one direction or not so you get to know exactly what is the the real value despite the fact that they are being push a little bit slightly, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, th there were also three words I bet my team could reiterate with me. And it was the simplicities of, do they bring the right attitude? Are they going to bring you effort every day? And are they coachable? And if you could get those things, you're usually going to be in a really good place. Mm. That's right. That's right. Eric, <clears throat> when, I, when I was looking at your book, I was going through the, the different chapters that, uh, that you have. And people may think that this, this guideline that you offer, like looks like step by step is something linear. So, but the question for you would be building a new culture. Is it based on iterations, non-linear approach where you are constantly checking up, measuring, assessing the results and pivoting if necessary, or is it something that we can plan as a linear roadmap? Yeah. So I think the book talks about the road trip and a journey, and it gives you from hiring and training, creating culture carriers all the way through to the eventual measurement of. And I think I used an approach. And in this approach, you might be at a different place because you'll go to an organization and just because it might be, quote unquote, a, a, a challenging culture, a toxic culture, it does not mean everything gets thrown out. There are probably some good components of it. I utilized a simple visual image, and it was an hourglass. <clears throat> and so when you thought of an hourglass, and you're in this explanation, you're going to have to understand you might be at a different section of that hourglass. Now, by the way, Ivan, is this audio or audio and video? Audio in. Okay, I was going to say, I had a vis video image I could have inserted about the hourglass. But okay, so envision this as you're in a car or taking a walk somewhere is the top part of an hourglass is truly where for iterations is where you might be pulling from employees and customers and clients and board members and stakeholders and whoever, whatever platforms you have to really pull in information to make good sound decisions. Now, as you look at an hourglass, it comes out and then it slowly gets really thin where the sand comes through. So as you've now pulled the information and you gather your team for a potential transformation and culture, you gather commit that right where this sand goes through is clarity. 
that is your priorities. It is going to be hopefully as simple as these three things, these two things. And as you have created clarity within your team on what you're actually going to be doing, you then see the hourglass coming out. That really goes into what we've already talked about. It is the training and coaching and development and getting the message to every single layer of your organization from top to bottom, the first hire to the person who's about to retire. It is put in, as we talked about, into your reviews, those behaviors that are going to guide the decisions we make that will give you the right outcomes, great outcomes, hopefully. And then the sand lies on the bottom. And that's the assessment part. That is where whatever your assessment tools are, I talk about a six-point inspection in the book, but you will then assess the health of your organization. Now, in an hourglass, if you could also envision this, there's usually potentially two, two things or two pillars on each side, especially if it's decorated nicely. One side, mission, vision, values. The other side, policies, procedures. These are really important because those are going to be your guiding boundaries between how decisions are made. And so when I look at what you can do is if you could take the hourglass. Now, it's called an hourglass. In the word hourglass, there's a special word called our, O-U-R. It's together we're going to do this. It is not an eyeglass that me and you are both wearing. It's not about the eye. And so everything from symbolism to looking through an approach of an hourglass is a simple way based on where your organization is. Now, right when you have it, we all know, pandemic, new technology, something happens, you then, right, all you do, you turn the hourglass over and kind of potentially restart some of those processes. So new technology comes in, you got to go maybe to the top of that hourglass, from, a, of a, from an understanding and teaching and coaching and committing and training. And so you know, that's a simplistic version of it. What I liked it, it is that <clears throat> it is an iterative process. It is based on assessing the outcomes of what you are going to be inputting. And as you say, you have to be able to turn the class to, in order to, with the results, with the assessment that you have taken about the actions that have worked or not, start the cycle again, which is something that is quite in line with the agility that is required in, to, in today's world. Businesses are changing in, in, in a couple of seconds. We have seen in the last five years, uh, so, many, so many major changes from the cultural side up to the how business are conducted. Uh, so we need this type of agility. So it's not only that you have a roadmap where you take the boxes and everything, you move on to the next one. Is it needs to be assessed in order to see if there needs to be certain corrections, some pivoting in in terms of the decisions that have been uh, have been taken. You know, Ivan, I'd almost compare it to you know you might read a great book on getting in shape, and the interesting thing is getting in shape. I mean, it could it's technically a linear thing. It just gets very complicated. I know if I eat well, I know if I sleep well, and I know if I work out good things are going to happen. It just gets a little challenging because there has to be some discipline along the way. Um, same with building culture. It, it, like, it never ends. I mean, I think that is some of the struggles people have to understand. Very similar to personal brand, Ivan. So mm -hmm. personal brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room. Uh, culture are the behaviors that happen when leadership is not in the room. And so it is this constantly evolving thing you have to stay very close to. Hmm. Tell me, in terms of, as we, we have been speaking a little bit about how the assessment of, of the current situation, uh, 
one of my questions to know if it is true or myth, it is, it would be about asking the questions about where do we stand in terms of culture and performance of the organization only to managers. Is that something that works or not in order to drive a change in culture? It's only to managers. So instead of asking everybody, we will ask only to managers because they know about culture and they know about performance. Yeah. Again, again, that's again another partly true because you know I would use. I'll give you an example. Uh, whether it's an organization I've uh, assisted or or organizations I've helped lead, it was really important to get what they would call, of course, diversity of thought and position. And so, if we just rely on managers, well, that's really important. Those are your what I call culture carriers. Those are the people you'd bring together potentially to really get the feeling of what's going on below them and potentially even things they're seeing above them. So it is a critical component and managers are a unbelievably critical part to building a high performance culture. It is the reason from an engagement standpoint, it is the number one reason people stay or leave is their immediate supervisor. And believe it or not, I heard a recent stat that a manager is more impactful to the health of their team than their primary care physician. So, I mean, it is an unbelievably powerful position, but there does have to be some information pulled from someone who's two months in and nine months in and 12 months in. So it is partly true that, that yes, managers are a huge component, might start with leadership's vision, managers help create an easier path, but you'll need a little bit more too. <laughs> That's right. Eric, so tell me, do companies really need consultants in order to start a cultural transformation? They, you know, I hate to say this being a, a person who consults, but I got to be honest, you know, I joke around a lot where I'll talk to someone and they want to talk about maybe designing an engagement strategy. And I say, hey, listen, the cheapest version of this it costs $29 and it's called jumpstart your workplace culture. Like get your leadership team, start with that. I don't need any more. I'm telling you, you go follow some of those. There will be some things that resonate. Now, are, is there value to other viewpoints who are a little further away from the circle? Of, of course, it's the same reason why companies have an outside company get an engagement survey, a pulse survey, wh whatever survey you're trying to do. They get a third party because people feel it's a little bit more anonymous. And so I hate to say it. I don't know. I don't think you need a consultant. You can do it. I think there's a lot of benefits to having some help. Yeah. And often the, the thing is that companies, corporations sometimes use the, the excuse that cultural change is going to cost a bomb. But the truth is that it's not. As you said, it could cost $29 or it could just, a start by the CEO displaying certain behaviors that the others wants to replicate because of the role modeling is an impactful uh, way mean to in order to convert others. If they see a senior management team behaving in a certain way, it's already a, a cue for employees that this is the way of survival. So we need to change to display the same type of behavior. So I my I, I share with you this view that it does it to kickstart a cultural change, you don't need that. Yeah. To do like maybe some tweaking, making it perfect. Yes, having an external per perspective, yes, that, that would make sense. Yeah, 
Very, it's a, Ivan, it's very similar. Again, going back to, to working out. There are some people who can just kind of watch a video or get some instructions and they just do it. Yeah. And I knew too many friends who will hire a personal trainer. It's not wrong. It's very good. They need that extra thing that's going to help them get going. The interesting thing about cultural change over the cost, in my opinion, it's just the cost of thinking and acting and doing mm -hmm. because it should you should be doing this stuff. You know, I talk about five factors of engagement a lot. They're free of charge. I mean, just have a strong relationship with your team throughout your organization. Clearly communicate your goals and expectations. Give a training and develop. Provide Ivan the right information and training to achieve the desired outcome. Help Ivan grow personally and professionally. And reward top performance. That's free. That should just be part of a You should be required reading for it. You know? So that's totally true. So it's like starting with simple human behaviors that we will apply in real life in our personal life, or maybe something that we wish for, our, for our, ourselves and applying these principles and focusing on, on deploying them through an organization, it doesn't cost much. That is true. Eric, I am pretty sure that you have gone into the research mode to write your, uh, your book. Um, and there was a couple of examples and I wanted to, to, to have the opportunity to also discuss and to kind of bitch about what is good or not in other corporations. Um, so according to you, what are the worst ways that to start a cultural change? Some examples that you have seen or done the research for your book that how bad can, can we go by, by starting some BS program to change to change culture. I, number one is assumptions. You cannot just assume that you know what's going on without really that top of the hourglass and pulling. And number two, they convey. So I talk about an ABC method of communication. So A is great organizations amplify the message and get it to all levels. They also really know how to buffer and become a distraction catcher. Uh, to avoid, as I would call, avoid the noise that goes on. The ones who seemingly assume that they can just convey it, so assuming, and then they just convey the information, meaning I'm going to pass it along and it'll just solve itself. I've seen organizations who they'll come up with a creative, a really good training module. Mm. It might be how to, they might be in the healthcare space and they're trying to get an individuals to be more empathetic, which is a mm. critical skill is vicariously understanding what Ivan is going through. I've never been through it. I'm vicariously learning this experience through you. And they'll just do this training that is sent out to leaders and it ends. And they just assume it's gonna trickle through the organization. Hmm. It's hard work to get these messages. So the mistake is they pass it along and think it's just gonna work. I, I want to refer back to something that you have mentioned before. When you're saying training, it means not only creating, igniting curiosity for some knowledge, but it's the possibility, the option for users to practice. So because I, I, I really don't want people to misunderstand that training in your language means capacity to practice, to create new behaviors, not just we invite a guy to speak for a couple of hours and magic will happen. Everybody is going to take care of their well-being. 
such a great point, Avin. I'm glad I'm glad you clarified that. I mean, there's so many different points of training. Yes, there is the training where someone will go and deliver training on empathy, for example. But the true usual magic, especially if you're in a customer facing, if you're in brick and mortar stores, is that manager level showing, observing and shaping behaviors as they go along. I used to call, we all make a hundred decisions a month. And Ivan, how many of those is our team passing along at the local level, not at the headquarters or corporate location or with their team? Maybe it's in a virtual setting where they have a huddle every Friday to go over some of these things. So thanks for sharing that. Yes, such an important part is what's done locally versus the assumption of training is someone's delivering a, a class. Exactly, exactly. Do you have any good examples, like even throw some names uh, of companies who have been successful at changing their culture? Yeah, I, well, and I want to stay away from the names everyone's heard of. I think since the pandemic, there's been so many amazing stories. Everyone's had, to, you know, I want to give the little restaurant in Toledo, Ohio, or in Connecticut somewhere, who had to change the way they either coach and develop, the way they have people coming in. Is it virtual? Is it hybrid? Is it not? changing policies and procedures to make things just work, becoming very adaptable. The two I briefly talk about because there were situations that they had to really look into. One was when you looked at what someone like a Dick Sporting Goods had to do. So all of a sudden, unfortunately, there was the Parkland shooting in Florida that unfortunately a lot of individuals were, were killed. And they had to make a decision because they, they had to decide to seize the sale of assault style rifles and high capacity magazines, which was a part of their functioning business. And they had to take a social responsibility to what was going on. And they took a bit of a stand, even though it was going to sacrifice some money. And so that was an interesting one. And of course, people remember Starbucks, a very well-known company. But what ends up happening is uh, two black men were wrongfully arrested in their store. And what Starbucks, they knew they messed up. They decided to close I don't know how many thousands of stores to do racial bias training. And they had to pivot to say, we clearly made a mistake. We need to ensure that we discuss this matter. They weren't assuming anything. They didn't just convey the message. They really dug in. And then there was a reason, you know, my nephew just started with a company called Abercrombie and Fitch. I don't know much about it. I know there was a Netflix special about I think it was specifically what they were doing wrong from hiring practices yes. and many, many other things. But from what I've been told, and I haven't done too much research on it, but based on his decision to start, they've made a really nice transformation based on how they have addressed these diversity and inclusivity issues from their appearance policies, which were people who looked like me, except I don't have six pack abs, you know. Uh, you know, they had to make some changes about their marketing campaigns and who they were tracking. So, but there are so many smaller organizations who have to make these pivots. And the key is matching your values, you know, remember your values and are you truly living and executing? This part that you have mentioned, uh, the biases, made me think about the importance that has taken uh, the understanding of human psychology uh, in the workplace. Um, if, despite the fact that, let's say, a good 
60% of HR people have a background in psychology, either partially or completely sometimes. um, Five years ago, it was very seldom. And maybe one of the reasons why HR uh, had a little bit of sucky reputation, it was that they weren't using this ability to understand human behavior in order to map shape new behaviors. Uh, And suddenly COVID happened and a lot of people has waken up their psychologists and there has been also many books that rely on human psychology, behavioral science in order to change behaviors or even work on biases because it looks like easy, but it's the most difficult thing that human beings can can do to fight against something that has been formatted for so many so many years. Um, even a challenge for me <laughs> for certain things. Um, at, what's your feeling? Is psychology going to be one of the major contributors to change in the workplace? Is it going to be used more in the coming five years? Yeah, well, I, I do. I mean, I, I think pulling behavioral data or understanding the human mind is going to be absolutely critical. We used, I'll tell you, some of my best salespeople, believe it or not, and when we were hiring for some entry-level positions, were those who had a psychology background. It mm-hmm. was kind of that Robert Cialdini kind of approach where he has yes. these sciences of, he called it the six sciences of persuasion. And you have to be able to study and assess analytically understand. And so you know, whether it's sales or on the HR side specific, I think those are some really big attributes that will be helpful. And I think like anything, it's just a nice balance of who you're looking to bring into the organization. And with HR, that is certainly going to be a a help. Um, What I found, what I found quite interesting about your personal uh, journey, so 25 years and mainly in managerial managerial or senior management positions that made me think that you were rather in in the uh, in the business front line how did it happen that suddenly you i don't think that it's suddenly but let me use that word suddenly you you changed to the side of just focusing on people and working on the most essential part of the organization and maybe one of the most needed parts yeah. today working on, on workplace and leadership development. How did you yeah. change or what so, make you feel? Yeah, I mean, you know, if you remember, I talked three important words, attitude, effort, coachability, the third coachability. I think starting my career, I think I always, it's kind of what you weren't doing. You try to become that person and then change behaviors. And so I think at the beginning I was okay. I think it was really good with the superstar. I was not as good with a person who I couldn't connect with. And I think learning and getting feedback from mentors of how do you truly connect with a diverse workplace who not everyone is going to think like you allowed me to really try to be a practitioner of it. So I became thirsty for more leadership. And luckily, I had some really good leaders who would explain the why behind the decisions we would be making. They would not just say, Eric, you've got to sell more. They would say, Eric, here's why it's important to sell. 
and they would explain the break-even maybe of this particular location and how, how important it was that when we're successful, we can support the communities that we live and work in. And it all started to make sense. And then I took those pieces and was just thirsty for more. Whether that was internally within a company or reaching out to mentors outside of a company, or nowadays it's so easy to listen to great podcasts like yours or read a book or do a variety of things for other really great thought leaders. And so I think that was an evolution of what I was to hopefully what I became as I continued to try to get better. Amazing. Now, I'm pretty sure that is there is going to be some of the audience who are going to be interesting to, interested on understanding what, what Clear Path Venture is, uh, is doing. This is number one. And number two, how to reach you out, Eric. Yeah. So there's three simple things. I like to keep those priorities pretty simple. Number one is I do speaking engagements for especially designing organizations engagement strategies. So I do a lot of keynote talks. And then there's the individual one-on-one -on -one coaching to usually middle to upper management that I will help and hence clear path. I always felt while it's never clear if you have a few of those key priorities, you can make it a clear path to moving forward. And it's the same with organizations of working with an organization. They're trying to transform their sales culture, their service culture, these experiences that have to change and working with organizations who do that. It, it's just a passion that became some fun that I get to do every day. And people can reach me. You could just go right to LinkedIn um, and pull up Eric Stone under Clear Path Ventures. You'll find me. You could go to... Uh, Instagram, clearpathventures underscore. You could go and just email me at eric at clearpathventures.com. Just a few easy ways to get hold of me. I will write down below this uh, this uh, episode, this, uh, these links. Eric, thank you very much for spending time with us. I really enjoyed, uh, one, I enjoyed going through your book. I did it in, in a two hours uh, reading, uh, but I needed to do it because I, I, I wanted to understand what was behind the your methodology, your approach. And I realized that it is not a book like the typical, uh, how to say, just sharing stories about how others do it. It is more like a guideline where, with practical elements on how to do it. And I love the simplicity of the language. So it is not something that I, I that is for me, a middle manager is going to take so much wealth of information in order to, uh, to apply it. I, I feel also that this is not a book for HR people. This is a book for people who want directly results, like practical results, business outcomes. And, and you have leveraged quite well on all the wealth of experience that you have got in the, uh, as a front frontliner. So... Thank you very much, Eric, for this episode. It was really lovely to host you in the Growth Hacking Culture Podcast. Thank you. Uh, I have a pleasure. Thanks for having me.